welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. I want to thank you so much for tuning in to episode 94. I don't know why I keep talking about episode 100. Maybe I'm the only one who cares, but I think it's pretty cool. And I really want to thank those of you guys who have stuck around with this show for as long as you have. And also to thank those of you guys who are relatively new to the show, who have just discovered it. Uh, it's been a lot of fun. I've really enjoyed being able to bring a lot of different guests, a lot of uh, you know interesting perspectives from all over the spectrum, and I don't just mean, you know, all over the political spectrum because, you know fuck the right wing, you know what I mean, whatever, but like what I'm really interested in are people who are doing interesting things, who are addressing the serious, significant political questions of our day in a variety of ways, and I'm hoping that you guys uh, agree with me that this show is kind of a platform for that, and in examining in depth, you know, a lot of these issues that are really, I think, uh, front and center in our politics today, uh, obviously the events of Charlottesville, obviously everything related to Trumple Stiltskin and the orange-tinted Beast and all of those other fun names we have for him and the craziness going on in the Middle East, what's happening in Latin America, all over the world. It seems like we have so many little brush fires that it's difficult to keep track of all of them. And that's one of the reasons why I'm always so grateful for Counterpunch, that there is a place called Counterpunch that I can go every morning and know that I'm going to get the kind of uh, perspectives, the critical analysis that I'm looking for as a news consumer and as somebody on the left. And so if you agree with me that Counterpunch is really an important vehicle for our uh, political perspectives on the left, consider getting a subscription to the print magazine. It's a great magazine, uh, excellent columns, every issue, great guest contributors, artwork, etc. It's a great way to support Counterpunch. It's also pretty cool to get a paper magazine in your mailbox. I don't know about you, but I don't do paper really anymore. So Counterpunch is the only one, and I really do appreciate that. And it's very gratifying, I have to say, those people who email me and say, you know, you badgered me so many times that I finally got that magazine and I'm really happy with it. So uh, also, please do consider, if you don't want the magazine, just go to the PayPal feature on the website. You can uh, donate there. You can pick up the phone and call Becky in California. You could do all sorts of different things to, uh, you know, become part of the Counterpunch family. And it really is kind of a family. So uh, also positive reviews for this show are always appreciated. iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, all those other uh, venues news where you can do that. That's greatly appreciated. And if you want my other work, please uh, do become a patron. You can go to patreon.com forward slash Eric Dreitzer. All right. All the self-promotion out of the way. Let me turn to my guest. I think she's probably well known to most of you guys, but... uh, well, maybe not everybody. Who knows? Uh, Abby Martin. Abby Martin is on the show today. Abby is the founder of uh, MediaRoots.org. She co-hosts a podcast, Media Roots Radio, with her brother, Robbie, who's a friend of this show. Uh, you can also find her work, The Empire File. She hosts that on Telesur. Follow her on Twitter at Abby Martin. Abby, welcome to Counterpunch Radio. Thanks so much for having me on, Eric. A huge fan of the publication. Oh, thank you. And a huge fan of your work and very grateful for you to come on today to talk about. I mean, we have a lot to talk about, really. But, man, I I think that we would be doing a disservice if we didn't focus on uh, the current situation in Venezuela, the work that you've been doing on that subject recently, because it's obviously so critical. It's it's critical in, in terms of geopolitics and you know global uh, political strategy, etc. But it's also critical for those of us on the left who do uh, want to follow what's happening in the Bolivarian Revolution. So let's begin there. And can you just tell us, before we get into 
the uh, you know the nuances of the issues and some of the specifics. Can you tell us about your recent trip there? What you were there to witness? What you actually saw? And what your uh, experiences and perspectives were after your trip there? Sure. Uh, you know, like a lot, a lot of other leftists uh, who have been anti-imperialist for a long time, um, I, I, you know, I kind of vaguely knew about the Bolivarian Revolution. I was a fan of Chavez, obviously, for saying that Bush, uh, you know, smelled the sulfur in the U- that famous UN speech, and of course, the controversial comments that he made that really caused, helped exacerbate the rift between Venezuela and, and the U.S. Empire. But, you know, other than that, I hadn't really been following day to day or really. Um, knew the nuances of of how the revolution had transpired and and what has happened since. So going there, I kind of was going with the perception that a lot of other Westerners were getting, which is these crazy edited uh, videos of of brutal repression on the streets, right, Um, of of so-called allegedly peaceful protesters. So other than that, of course, we hear that the press is totally controlled, right, that Maduro controls the press. And Ever since Chavez died and Maduro took over, he's just been consolidating power and and more dictatorial um, ways. So before going there, of course, knowing where I was coming from, which is we're a production house. uh, The Empire Files is a production house and we sell a show to Telesor. Telesor is a Latin American conglomerate of different state entities that funds um, what what was supposed to be a countermeasure to CNN consolidation of corporate media around the world? So um, I, you know, I talked to my boss about it, and I was just like, "This is, uh, as you know, we're going to report exactly what we see. Um, you know, we we never had any any sort of guide or anything like that. Just just letting people know who think that somehow my reporting was shaped by the fact that we sell our show to Telesor. Complete falsehood, right? So anyone who knows my work also knows that I will put my job on the line to tell the truth. I, I, I have extreme editorial independence. I, I will never do anything unless I have complete um, control over my editorial line. So that aside, we go there, and we were surprised um, at how normal everything seemed. And as you're there longer in the country, we're there for nearly a month, but the longer you're there, the more you realize that the majority of the country really functions normally. Um, it's just these protest barricades that are constant um, that kind of shut down city life in, in certain centers. So I'll start with the protests. And that's, um, yes, there are massive protest demonstrations that are entirely peaceful, right? Um, up to 100,000 people have been protesting in the streets, um, demonstrating completely peacefully. Um, the police and National Guard do not respond to these protests. And I went to one. I, I talked to several people. I heard all of their grievances. And this is all... In the episode, I tried to, with these episodes, really lay out the Venezuelan voices themselves without inserting my narrative or gender or bias, unlike before, where I kind of come out um, and, and wear it on my sleeve. I really wanted these people to tell their own story because you rarely hear from Venezuelans themselves. So, you know, got all their voices at the protest. And then, you know, as the night went on, Eric, um, I, I witnessed one of these guarimbas, one of these protest barricades unfold in front of my eyes. And I realized that this is the tactic. This is the strategy that's used that you see this death toll coming from. We've heard this death toll, 120 killed in the streets, right, since the unrest began. That's a lot of fucking people who have died. Um, and then once you're there, you kind of see how the protest shifts, um, where let's you know, just imagine uh, a, a contingent of maybe a hundred or less people, semi-armed protesters, um, clad with with uh, shields and and homemade mortars and um, Molotov cocktails, and they are going up and directly confronting National Guard and police officers. And um, as the night went on and the the peaceful protest ended, 
we were we were following these Guarimba protesters and they came up to us extremely hostile and 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 confronted me saying where are you who are you with like screaming in my face and I was like oh my god we're gonna get fucking jumped I was like I I, I mean I guess we've been to Palestine I've Mike you know my my partner former occupying soldier of Iraq but he said at that moment it was one of the scariest moments of our lives because we know what these people are capable of and I'll get into that in a second so what they told us and I said I'm American we're here to cover you like in a fair way I said we're American journalists and to them, I mean, America, um, they love American propaganda because it paints them uh, and glorifies these protests as, as right and just. So they were just like, great, film what we don't film what we do. Film the repression that happens to us. Film what the state does to us. And I was like, that's crazy. OK, so we, we follow these guys. Uh, we see them burning giant trash piles of flame, the, the entrance to the freeway, the exit to the freeway dousing it with uh, gasoline and kerosene, lighting it aflame. Cars are almost flipping over and falling off the freeway, trying to get out of the way of these barricades. And then they commandeer three giant trucks, um, semi-auto, 18-wheeler trucks, basically commandeer them, pull the people out of the trucks, and block the entire freeway. And this was going on for about an hour. There's an, there was an Air Force base down below that they started hurling rocks and God knows what else toward them before even the first tear gas canister was thrown. And I thought, wow, coming from, you know, Occupy Wall Street covering what goes on in America with this militarized police state that we have, I was appalled that it took that much for a tear gas canister to, to fly. And then at the end of the night, Eric, I realized that there was no arrests. We found out the next day, no arrests that night. Compare that to the 200 plus people that are facing life in prison for a broken window just simply for being in the vicinity of an inauguration protest. So what you realize is that these people have direct provocations and confrontations with the police and a lot of the death toll when you break it down the vast majority well over half has been called caused directly or indirectly by opposition violence and protesters with either the barricades cars trying to get out of the way getting crushed motorcyclists getting crushed um uh or just police national guard members getting shot and killed and then aside from that the most despicable kind of thing about about the death toll is you see a lot of these people have been killed directly by political assassinations of Chavistas. Um, at least five people, and this is all from opposition protesters, have been burned alive. Now, I can't liken that characteristic to any other group other than maybe the KKK or actual direct Nazis in Ukraine. I mean, I, that is a really fascistic characteristic of, of the opposition. And I and and you cannot argue with me that that is any has any relevance to attain a political goal whatsoever. And people actually have tried to argue with me. And then when you look at the targets um, of the opposition protesters, you realize, you know, that kind of tells you all you need to know. Here you're kind of you see them using the poor cynically to advance their own agenda and say we're starving, we we can't afford food. Um, they're burning food distribution warehouses, factories. They burned 50 tons of food meant to divvy up, uh, you know, subsidize for poor people there. So the protests are happening in a wealthy kind of uh, upper middle class areas um, that, that are controlled even by opposition governors, by police. They're attacking the housing ministry, socialist enclaves, uh, education youth centers. They, they invaded a maternity clinic and had it under siege for two days. So once you kind of unpack you know, the reality here, you realize that things are not all they seem, Eric. And, and the way that the media covers this protest movement is fucking atrocious. 
And that's just the protest. I mean, we can get into, you know, the media, of course, is completely obfuscated, too. I mean, I went and bought eight newspapers at newsstands around the country or on Caracas. Five or six were vehemently anti-government. I mean, it was incredible. Two were, were pro-government, but, but the majority of the press is opposed to Maduro. Um, and they get away with way more than you would ever see the press here. And, and as we know, Eric, the corporate media might as well be state media here because all it does is echo imperial propaganda and pro-empire, pro-war, pro-corporate propaganda. So it was incredible to see kind of reality inverted as I was there. Yeah, absolutely, Abby. I think you're spot on. Obviously, this this idea of this sort of uh, inversion of reality that we understand in the United States or really just in the global north generally, what protests look like, how law enforcement responds to them, how they play out from the, you know, from the early morning to the evening and, you know, usually ending in mass arrest, usually ending in criminal prosecutions and so forth. And you transplant that understanding to Venezuela and it simply doesn't hold. Now, I was there in December of 2015, and listeners of this show know, because I've mentioned this pretty much every time we've talked about Venezuela, but that was a really landmark uh, election, because that was the election that Chavistas lost, where the right wing really took control of the National Assembly, and going around uh, Caracas and to other parts of the country after that election, there were a lot of really interesting things that came to the surface, including the some of the disaffection that people had with the Bolivarian government or with the Bolivarian revolution and with the Maduro government. Some of it had to do with the fact that uh, they were simply tired of all of the problems and wanted things to just go away or, quote, go back to normal and so forth. But one of the other things that I noticed, and, and I'd like to get your comment on this, had to do with the class nature of the politics. When you saw people who were really active in opposing the government, it was almost with Without exception, affluent people, people of means, people from the middle to the upper classes in the country, those living in the uh, posher areas of East Caracas. I, I did meet some working class people who had issues with the government, but none of them would consider themselves in the opposition. So can you talk a little bit about the class dynamics that you witnessed when you were there and how that relates to the political perspectives that you saw? It is uh, very apparent. Um, I mean, this is a country on the verge of a civil war, and it is all class-based. Um, it, it's really apparent just with uh, the the color of people's skin. I mean, it's it's sad to kind of generalize a movement in that way, but it's very obvious. I mean, we're out there interviewing people at the protests, and, and I mean, I'd say 99% of them were white and, and obviously more affluent. I mean, it was just obvious. I mean, jewelry from, from the clothes they were wearing, the jewelry to the things that they were saying. I talked to about 30 people doing man on the streets and um, uh, people were saying that we can't buy what we need. We can't buy as many things that we want to. Another woman said, if you have money, the system doesn't work. Um, another guy who was holding an unexploded ordinance that looked like an unpinned grenade with his shirt off with a mask on said, I can't be an entrepreneur. Um, in this society, I can't be an entrepreneur. And that, And I think that was a really telling moment for me because I was like, here I am in the middle of this crazy Guarimba um, where people are dying over this. And you're telling me that you're out here risking life and limb because you can't be an entrepreneur. You know, check out America. I mean, you know, these people who say try living here with an, on the minimum wage. You cannot live anywhere in the entire country here, Eric, on minimum wage. You can't even afford a one bedroom apartment. So I found that really odd. 
that it went from we're being massacred in the streets, we're, we're starving, we have nothing to eat. And then when you press these people a little bit more, you realize, oh, it's really just about you want to buy a second car or you, you know, you can't be an entrepreneur and own a business. Like, is that really what this is about? So yes, like I said before, a lot of these protests are happening in the more affluent um, opposition held areas, which are uh, white, predominantly white. And, and again, they're cynically using the poor when in reality, they are the ones who can afford more food. They can afford to buy these things. They aren't stuck on minimum wage. Not everyone's on the same salary. It's not you know, it's not like a, <laughs> these communist, this communist folklore that, that says everyone's in line to get their rations of daily gruel. I mean, it's completely not like that at all. It's a mixed economy um, of uh, cooperative, private, and, and um, state. So uh, when you see the Chavez supporters, and this is obviously very apparent too, because of course the Western media ignores revolutionary-minded people. Um, they ignore the fact that Chavismo is alive and well, an organic force that cannot be crushed, and it's far from over, far from dead. And you go to these dueling rallies of pro-government people, um, where there's also tens of thousands of people marching, and they are all predominantly more indigenous-looking, more black, um, obviously more poor. And that's where Chavez came from. And you see a lot of these people also kind of have open contempt for Maduro because he's a bus driver. You you hear that a lot. They're like, I. I don't want some bus driver leaving this country. So it's a lot of open contempt for the poor. And, and that's what it comes down to is when you look at what the opposition has done over the years, coup attempt after coup attempt. In 2002, when they, when they took power for three days and kidnapped Chavez and whisked him away, what did they do? They immediately threw out the Constitution. They immediately dissolved the Supreme Court. I mean, the, they don't care about democracy. They don't care about the poor. These are propaganda talking points used to create some sort of international um, hysteria to so they can honestly have um, regime change, U.S.-led regime change and a coup because they are afraid that they cannot win democratically, obviously. Otherwise, they wouldn't have tried to take power through undemocratic means ever since Chavez got elected. Well, that's right. And one of the one of the most common things that you hear from people who have been living in Venezuela for a long time, be they Venezuelan or be they expats who have uh, settled there, is the fact that over the course of the last 15 years, the opposition went from open uh, contempt for everything uh, that Chavismo was about, that Chavez was about, uh, open contempt for the poor, open contempt for uh, a lot of the most core issues that Chavismo was interested in, to now attempting in various ways to absorb those tactics into their own strategy, into their own talking points. So you see the right-wing opposition, which is misogynist and racist and classist and all of these things, they have a... They, they had in 2015, they had a transgendered candidate. They use language talking about poor and working class people. They use the talking points that Chavez and, and, and Maduro have used and attempt to weaponize them against the government, knowing quite rightly, of course, there is a lot of discontent. There are a lot of angry people. There are a lot of people who are frustrated, who have had to do things like spend their weekends waiting in lines or, you know, struggling to maintain 
impacting their savings because of inflation or the economic war impacting their children or what have you. So there there are many different methods by which the opposition is attempting to not only sow discord, but actually drive wedges into the society. And I think that part of that is, of course, and this is always true in Latin America, it is the backing from the United States and the soft power apparatus. When Donald Trump or Barack Obama before him would give these little fig leaves to the right wing, it would only embolden them further. So can you talk a little bit about some of the ways in which uh, the opposition seems to be motivated by social chaos and, secondly, the United States? Absolutely. Well, Capriles, uh, that's amazing that you were there also. Were you observing the election? I wasn't an official observer. Yeah. I was with a delegation from New York City, uh, I guess you could say allies of the Bolivarian Revolution kind of thing. Awesome. Awesome. So Capriles, as we know, ran on like a socialist light platform. I mean, he 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 basically ran on Chavismo light because that's how popular socialism is in Venezuela. I mean, yep. these people have no plan. It's basically you laid it out really perfectly. It's like the liberal co-optation of actual radical language and thought and using it to, to basically just push more corporate control, privatization. Um, so it's hijacking revolutionary language, hijacking revolutionary culture and co-opting it. And, and, and you can see what happened since 2015, right? So, so Chavismo was in power until then. As you mentioned, this was the first time that the opposition really took um, power in the National Assembly. So what did they do when they took power? Well, Unfortunately, they just exacerbated the crisis in every single way that they could. We are talking about an opposition that has received well over $50 million from the U.S. empire since 2000. So when you turn that around on the black market, I mean, just imagine how much money and how far that money can go. Um, and that's going from everything from the, the pro-democracy, you know, like they who knows what kind of fake programs have been installed on the ground to try to um, manipulate public opinion, et cetera, or on social media. We have to remember that that's a big um, factor as well of, of shaping public opinion. But the opposition has has done everything from going abroad to try to cancel loans. I mean, this is why that big story about Goldman Sachs, that they tried to propagate this as like, oh, look how horrible Venezuela got a loan from Goldman Sachs. And this was actually put out there by the opposition as a talking point again um, picking up on the sensibilities of anti-Wall Street leftists, right, to say, like, look at, look how hypocritical. Well, actually, you guys have made it impossible for Venezuela to actually have a, a, a place on the global marketplace of getting money and loans. Um, so there has been so much sabotage, and this has been revealed time and again. Um, and you can go back from just 2000. I mean, just looking at the black market alone, the fact that Polar, Polar is the biggest food distribution company in, in, in Venezuela. And again, going back to this mixed economy, this is not state run. This is not a controlled economy. Um, a lot of this is private corporations, which still have um, a huge amount of control over items that are basic staples for Venezuelans that to make arepas, etc. So um, Polar actually controls Polar CEO. Let me start there. Lorenzo Mendoza. He's an open member of the opposition. He has been accused of hoarding goods. Um, he was exposed in the Panama Papers as has as uh, um, hoarding wealth abroad. He is responsible also for um, 62% of the corn flour used for making arepas. And as we know, arepas are the main food staple for Venezuelans. He's responsible for eight of the main items in Venezuela's food basket. So as we know, these corporations, and this happened in Salvador Allende's term too, 
you look at, at, at newspapers during Allende's um, reign and you see that inflation, the shortages, these are things that are actually concocted and exacerbated in, in terms of an economic war because this is not a crisis. Unemployment is not skyrocketing. This is a manipulated manufactured crisis on behalf of these private corporations to, to make the economic situation worse. Um, and yes, it is true. Venezuelans are experiencing food shortages that yes, they have lost, I think an average of like 15 pounds over the last couple of years. But what happened over the last couple of years, the opposition took power and they have not done anything to help the economy. And that's why people in recent polls, they've said they do not believe the opposition has a solution because all the opposition has done is make the problems worse. It's kind of like the Democrats here. Their only selling point is look at the other guy. Um, meanwhile, making everything so much, so much worse. I forgot what I was going to say about about other things that Polar has done. Oh, yeah, there was a there was a leaked phone call of Lorenzo Mendoza, the Polar CEO, with the IMF, encouraging the IMF, kind of secretly plotting how they need a new in- installation of IMF. Um, I don't know, micro lending programs in the country. Um, anyone who's followed Venezuelan politics for a while knows that the IMF is what caused basically this whole revolution to start. Um, there was there was an IMF program in, in place that caused skyrocketing oil prices and goods. And, and there was a massacre. Three thousand people were gunned down, mowed down in the streets. And that's what actually inspired Chavez to try to perform that first coup to take over that kind of finance U.S. puppet that was in there before he took over. So Polar is super sketchy. All these corporations are. And when you break down, you know, why is why is it that there's toilet paper that you can't find toilet paper in any of these stores, but you can find Kleenex, paper towels, um, a surplus of paper products. Like, why is that? It only makes sense that these corporations are doing this on purpose by not making these products. And then when they do have these products, they go immediately to the black market and they're hoarded. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I think always needs to be kind of interjected in talking about the economic war is that it's it's multiple things at the same time. On the one hand, it's obviously the strangulation of the distribution of goods for the for political purposes. Right. Uh, you, you mentioned uh, the historical example of Allende in Chile. I think that's a that's an excellent parallel. It's one I've made before as well. And the famous, uh, you know, declassified memo from Henry Kissinger and and, and Milton Friedman and their crew, quote unquote, to make the economy scream, right? To make the economy scream was the means by which they were attempting to collapse that socialist government. Similarly, I think in Venezuela, they're doing what they can to make the economy scream. However, when you bring that up, you're always inevitably going to come up against people who say, wait a second, you're just deflecting the uh, uh, legitimate criticism from the government, which failed in in terms of policies, which failed in terms of A, B, C, D, and E. And I just want to, I think it's important to say that to point out that there's an economic war is not the same as absolving the government of all responsibility. Obviously, the government has tremendous power and influence, and obviously over the course of the last few years, there have been some policies that have been great and very successful, others that have been failures and have been scrapped. But the crisis, quote-unquote, that we're seeing in Venezuela, I think it takes a tremendous amount of willful ignorance to believe that what we're seeing 
saying in terms of the shortages and everything else are purely the result of economic mismanagement. That's the kind of propaganda you'll get from the Economist or, you know, from for the Financial Times or these type of uh, corporate media publications that are so gung-ho anti-socialist that they'll do anything they can to smear the economic system, this mixed economic system. Uh, you know, and I'm not going to get into this whole debate about whether it's truly socialism or not. The fact of the matter is, if you're not practicing neoliberal capitalism, you're an enemy to the media establishment. That's why they attack socialism in Venezuela and ignore the economic war. Absolutely. And, and it's all anti-communism. I mean, you don't hear the failures or economic crises going on in any other world and say that's capitalism. But because Venezuela is this, this example that everyone can point to and say, that's the failure of socialism. And, and we can say it. It does. First of all, it's not socialist. It's extremely obvious that it's not socialist. And of course, Maduro has enormous responsibility. And of course, there should be accountability with um, everything from corruption to the lack of diversification with the economy um, to the wholehearted dependence on oil. Of course, when oil prices drop, I mean, they lost a third of their GDP. That's insane. Um, and to actually have that not affect the social spending and all the missions that they implemented, that's amazing. So, yes, of course. Every, but it's not just the economists and it's not just these financial publications. It's leftist publications, too. And this is the problem, Eric. It's this black and white dichotomy that that I that makes me irate because it's either, oh, oh, so you're just you're just a Maduro lackey and you're just like, oh, it's all the U.S.'s fault, isn't it? Or it's like, oh, it's all socialism, it's all Maduro's fault. And as we know, that, that's a cartoonish depiction of the complex reality on the ground. But of course, it's, it's ridiculous, it's laughable to say that there isn't an economic war and that a, a, a CIA-backed U.S.-financed opposition would not be doing things to exacerbate that crisis when they've tried so desperately to take power, regain control over the country for so long. Um, so, yes, it's a little bit of both, but I would say it's more so the economic war. And there's a lot of criticisms that you can have about Maduro, but it's it's ridiculous that to, to point this out, you're somehow shut down um, from from, you know, academia. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it ha it's happened to me so many times. It makes me kind of really get exas you know uh, exasperated with 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 people sometimes where they just feel that anything that isn't 100% in 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 complete ideological keeping with their vision of what socialism in this in this world is supposed to be then that is that has to be opposed never mind the fact that the country is under direct assault from the most dominant empire the world has ever known <laughs> never mind you know never mind the fact that the this is a this is a society that has been subjugated by colonial power for at least two centuries and on and on and on. No, no, no. The most important thing is that this isn't 100% exactly how Marx and whoever else may have may have envisioned it. This is, of course, nonsense, and this is not real politics. But what I wanted to get at, and mm -hmm. we're about to go into break here, but I just want to get your comment on this. One thing I noticed when I was there, and it's obviously gotten worse since then because of the uh, nature of the crisis, but... You know, uh, when I was going when I was going to Venezuela, I was going through uh, LaGuardia, and and, and the uh, TSA agents took away my uh, sunscreen and they took away my deodorant. So I ended up uh, landing in Caracas, a white boy with very very fair skin. <laughs> prepared to be sunburned, no, no sunscreen and no uh, deodorant. Now I was there for two weeks. I never 
did find sunscreen or deodorant. I went into, I must have gone into a, a hundred different stores uh, in multiple parts of, of Caracas and multiple uh, uh, towns outside of the city, and I never did find them. Those those things were simply unable, to, I was unable to get. The only way you could get them was either through, you know, a friend with a black market connection or waiting in line in, in, a, in, a, in a government dispensary or something like that. So, the reason I bring up this anecdote is not to talk about my, you know, my my smell and stuff. Trust me, people, I took care of it. I promise. But what I'm what I'm bringing up is the fact that there is a psychological toll that is taken on regular, ordinary working people as they have to live their lives day in and day out with the reality of an economic war. That the economics of it is only one level. That you have to also take into account the psychological impact that that'll have. It'll wear you down. Even the most dedicated chavista will eventually get frustrated tired and and really just exasperated having to deal with the mechanics of everyday life under these conditions so can can you talk a little bit about the psychological aspect of this and did you notice any of that going on uh in venezuela i certainly did with a lot of people who i encountered who were leftists and either didn't participate in the election or voted for the opposition simply out of anger and frustration what was your what was your uh, experience with the psychological impacts in Venezuela? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, a lot of leftists and Chavistas still, um, you know, aside from the people who have abandoned them because they've been so frustrated and worn down. But a lot of people who are still Chavistas, even though they understand the economic war, it can't not weigh you down. I mean, these people, you know, no one wants to get a clap basket of oil and eggs every month and wait in line for eight hours to get that. I mean, it's absolute hell when you really go down to the nitty gritty of, of what this economic war has done to the psychology of just average Venezuelans who are trying to live their lives. Um, and the people, multiple people I've ta- I talked to who did support Chavez and they blame Maduro. But of course, it's just the same here, Eric. It's, it's everyone blaming the state. It's, it's that misdirection, right, where you just blame the government for Everything that happens um, when really it's the market forces that that direct the government and, and really are responsible for a lot of these things and controlling, you know, the, the Wall Street lackeys in the government. But when it comes to Venezuela, of course, uh, who else are you going to blame? Right. The government's in power. Um, Maduro's controlling everything. I mean, we're talking about a, a society that 92 percent um, of of news is captured on opposition media. Um, only 8 percent is really captured on state media that people really tune in. So they're seeing. Imagine kind of the skewed perception that even Venezuelans are seen. So given that, I was actually really surprised at how alive uh, Chavismo still is in the country, how 8 million people came out to vote in the recent Constituent Assembly, how, I mean, it, it depends on who you talked on the street, I'd say half the people will totally understand the, the um, dynamics of the economic war and be super astute and really conscious of the effects of imperialism, et cetera. And the other half will be screaming, Maduro's a dictator, we, we're starving. Um, and, and a lot of the people who did support Chavez blame Maduro. And, and there was a poll, again, a poll that came out um, from the same company that, that took the one that said 60% still call themselves socialists in the country. Can you imagine if that was <laughs> the same consciousness in America? But a lot of those people said, Again, they don't think the opposition has a plan to solve the economy. They just vote for the opposition, as you said, to send a message. Um, Same reason why a lot of people here vote third party. It's not that we think third party candidates will have a choice. It's because we can't in good conscience vote for 
the two-party system. And I'm just saying that that an example of, of a protest vote, right? So I think yeah. a lot of these people in Venezuela are doing the same thing because they want to send a message to Maduro. But Absolutely. it doesn't mean that they support the opposition. That's right. And I, just, uh, just another very quick anecdote. A taxi driver who was driving me and a couple of other people uh, made a very interesting statement to me that I, I will never forget. He was anti-Chavista. He didn't, he, he never was a big fan of Chavez and really despised Maduro. And he said that he also hates the opposition and he has nothing but negative <laughs> feelings towards the opposition. But he voted for the opposition anyway. And I asked him why. I said, you know what the opposition is. You may hate uh, uh, Maduro and the, and the Bolivarian government, but you know what they are. So why are you voting for them? And he said to me, and, and, you know, this really blew me away. He said to me, you know, honestly, I don't really like either option, but if I vote for the opposition, maybe, maybe the Americans will ease up a little bit. That's what, wow. he, that's what he said. I mean, wow. this is a taxi driver who, who is not a supporter of, of Chavismo at all. And that was his political consciousness. And I had to sit back and wonder to myself, how many other people in Venezuela are thinking that? That is incredible. I, I, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. He said, <laughs> he said, the only good thing about Chavismo is that I can fill up my car for like four cents. He's like, but other than that, I don't care about any of these socialists, socialism, capitalism, whatever. He's like, I want to support my family. He's like, my son has had problems with university because of the government, et cetera, et cetera. He's like, but really, ultimately, I want the Americans to, to, to ease up a little bit. So maybe we need the opposition. Dude, that's so sad. It's, it shows you how much people are really worn down. I mean, that, that, that exemplifies it right there. It's that people are so distraught by the economic war that they're just like, fuck it. Maybe if we put the opposition in, that, that the opposition will give us, <laughs> give us goods again. I mean, maybe they'll lay off. Maybe they'll start distributing things and, and producing products again. I mean, that's, that's a really sad commentary, Eric. Absolutely. It, it blew me away. So um, anyway, all right, let's take a quick break. On the other sure. side of the break, a lot more to talk about with Abby Martin. You're listening to Counterpunch Radio. We'll be right back. You're asking what is socialism and what it really means. It's equal rights for every man, regardless of his strength. So don't let no one fool you, Joshua said. Listen as I tell you, Joshua said. No man are better than none. Socialism is love between man and man. Socialism is love for your brother. Socialism is linking hearts and ends. Would you believe it? Poverty and hunger is what we're fighting. Socialism is sharing with your sister. Socialism is people pulling together. Would you believe me? Love and togetherness. That's what it means. Mr. Bigger trembling in his shoes, saying he's got a lot to lose. Don't want to hear about sufferer at all. Joshua said, one man of too many. While too many have too little Socialism don't stand for that Don't stand for that at all Socialism is love for your brothers Socialism is linking hearts and ends Poverty and hunger is what we're fighting Socialism is sharing with your sisters Socialism is people pulling together 
Socialism is love for your brother. Socialism is linking hearts and ends. Poverty and hunger is what we're fighting. Socialism is sharing with your sisters. Do you believe me? People pulling And we're back here on Counterpunch Radio. I'm chatting with Abby Martin. I'm sure you already are, but in case you're not, follow her on Twitter at Abby Martin, A-B-B-Y-M-A-R-T-I-N. Also go to MediaRoots.org and uh, subscribe to the Media Roots Radio podcast with Abby and her brother Robbie, both uh, excellent political minds and great insights on that show. Uh, so Abby, um, we were talking before the break about some of the psychological aspects of uh, what's going on in Venezuela, but another piece of this puzzle that I think often gets ignored is the, um, let's call it the international criminal component. Because you were talking uh, at the beginning of our conversation about the Guarimbas and about some of the tactics that are used. And uh, we need to also remember that a lot of the people who are committing uh, some of the most serious crimes in Venezuela are part of criminal gangs and criminal gang networks, many of which go back across the border into Colombia and have been traced directly to former Colombian President Uribe. You had an assassination for hire ring that was directly connected to him. One of the most prominent Chavistas, uh, uh, Robert Serra, who was assassinated, young, up and coming, uh, seen by many as the next Hugo Chavez, assassinated by uh, people directly connected to the former president of Colombia. You have drug runners who are either directly connected to Uribe or other criminal gangs. A lot of these sorts of uh, illicit economic activities are connected to organized crime as well as the assassination of Chavista. So did you get any any uh, sense from people that you talked to that maybe there was something that wasn't totally Venezuelan about everything you were seeing? Absolutely. We're talking about a country with, I think, 30 million people. How many people are Colombians? Six million. Six million Colombians in a country of, of 30 million people. Um, Dan Kavalik, I just interviewed this great human rights attorney who has friend been going to both countries. Friend, friend of the, the show. show. Yeah, he's Kavalik. great. Yeah. And um, he, you know, he, he studied human rights abuses in Colombia very extensively. And the, and the coverage, the, the, the tale of two countries, right, the coverage of, of Colombia and Venezuela is quite uh, astounding or the lack thereof when it comes to Colombia. But yes, I mean, in a country with that many Colombian refugees because of the, the drug war, or the, the war on the left there for decades and decades, um, that has to do something to a country, right? And of course, all the food subsidization that has been taken off across the border, entered the black market. Um, but aside from that, the paramilitary death squads that have yep. bled over um, people who, you know, of course, Venezuela is one of the most crime ridden countries in the world outside of an active war zone. It's one of the most dangerous countries to be. The violence and, and murder rate is no joke. But you cannot look at that country in a vacuum. You cannot look at the crime rate in that country in a vacuum without looking at what the U.S. has done to Colombia um, ever since Kennedy's national security doctrine. Um, you know, we, we went in there and basically created the notion of a paramilitary death squad. And since then, um, hundreds of thousands of people have been disappeared, murdered, tortured, 
Uh, all of this is one and the same when you have essentially an open border between the two countries. And these right-wing paramilitary death squads have come over and taken over wide swaths of territory in both countries. Um, and, and that failed coup attempt with those, I don't know, those 10 dudes who were dressed in military gear. I mean, how much do these paramilitary forces have to do with these coup attempts, with the training of opposition protesters, with these warehouses that we find with all the surplus gas masks and and Molotov cocktail factories. I mean, how much of that has to do with with what's bleeding over from Colombia, Eric? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. But uh, but another question to ask uh, in that same vein is how much of that is directly or indirectly funded by the U.S. government and U.S. taxpayers? Because, of course, uh, under the Clinton administration and carried forward uh, through the Bush administration was uh, so-called Plan Colombia, in which the United States has given billions of dollars to very corrupt individuals, including Uribe and the people in his net works and a lot of that money goes missing it goes into the black hole and and we could i think safely assume that some significant portion of that money is laundered and filtered down to these paramilitary death squads so when you see some of these people in venezuela doing things like burning people alive or you know robbing warehouses or setting buildings on fire and stuff you have to also ask yourself how much of this is organized crime how much of that are these paramilitary groups that infiltrate into the country when Chavez was still in power in Venezuela, we would hear this at least once every couple of months that the Venezuelan government had uh, uncovered yet another cell inside the country, yet another example of people infiltrating across the border and on and on. I remember planned attacks against uh, PDVSA, the, the state oil company, planned attacks against the presidential palace, Miraflores, and on and on and on. You have a whole, uh, at least two decades of documented evidence in which these groups that are directly financed by the United States are wreaking havoc in that country. Absolutely. And Colombia has received, uh, I think, more money than any other country in, in the Western Hemisphere. That's easily provable. And also people have called it the Israel of Latin America. I mean, the U.S. has had more presence and control over Colombia than even Afghanistan. Um, and you mentioned Plan Colombia. Yeah, I mean, this is going off of the national security doctrine. Then it was Plan Colombia. And then, you know, it's been the drug war ever since communism hasn't been a threat to the empire anymore. So then it was the drug war. So what's happened under the drug war in Colombia? Well, cocaine crops just cashed in record profits last year. Uh, amazing. Kind of like the heroin in Afghanistan. Isn't that incredible Hooray. that after 12 years or I'm sorry, 16 years. Wow. We've been in the country for so long. I, I uh, you know, tack on five years of that. But Afghanistan, of course, the heroin crop um, is at record high too. 90 percent of the world's heroin comes from Afghanistan. The same thing with Colombia. So after tens of billions of dollars um, wasted away in that country. Where is that money gone? Huh? That's so funny. Apparently, it's not going to um, cut off the cocaine supply at all. And you mentioned the training. I mean, look no further than the School of America is now Winsock. Colombia has been trained more there than any other country in the world. And, and the School of America has, has trained the most notorious dictators and death squads responsible for um, the, the most horrendous atrocities. And, you know, for a country that likes to expound how much we care about human rights. Amazingly, we just took, you know, Chiquita Banana, Del Monte and Dole, these banana companies um, that paid death squads also and are responsible for also tens of thousands of deaths in Colombia. Because these death squad leaders were kind of given up a little bit too, too much information about U.S. corporations, fruit corporations, we actually just extradited them all to the U.S. 
and we're letting them serve out measly like decade plus sentences and then we're giving them a stipend we're bringing over their friends and families these are people who are death squad leaders who are responsible for over a thousand people being killed we are giving them protection here in the u.s because we want to protect our good fruit company friends so that's how much we give a fuck about human rights well, you know, to be fair, the U.S. has a long tradition of bringing over the worst of the worst <laughs> offenders and giving them government stipends. Let's not talk about the uh, the Cuban terrorists and others, yep. but uh, absolutely. So uh, that's a great point. Now, the international component, I think, is really important here. We mentioned Colombia. On the other side of uh, Venezuela's, on the eastern border, is Guyana, which has a running conflict with Venezuela that has been majorly exacerbated by ExxonMobil. Of course, ExxonMobil. Mobil is now directly in charge of the U.S. State Department. Funny how that worked out. Uh, Rex Tillerson at the he- as the head of the State Department, ExxonMobil really, to a large extent, in charge of major uh, aspects of U.S. foreign policy. So when you have uh, this uh, conflict between Venezuela and Guyana over these uh, newly discovered offshore oil and gas reserves, you have to ask yourself also how much of that is a product of U.S. involvement uh, behind the scenes behind the government of Guyana, which they directly supported uh, in in order to essentially foment another border conflict for Venezuela to deal with. Yeah, I mean, Venezuela has the largest oil reserves in the world. It's, you know, when Condoleezza Rice had that Exxon oil tanker and everyone was like, oh, shit, like how crazy the Bush administration has all these oil ties. Well, now we have ExxonMobil running our foreign policy. Can it get any more obvious yeah. I mean, do we really even have to spell this out for people? I mean, we have the Raytheon vice president, <laughs> I can't speak, the Raytheon vice president running the army now. It's just a joke, Eric. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I don't mind uh, pronouncing it president. That's fine. <laughs> I can say that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it is crazy. And then if you take into account what's going on around South America, you saw, of course, the right wing ascendance in Argentina, where uh, President Macri succeeded uh, uh, Cristina, Cristina Fernandez. Uh, of course, we also see the... Um, what can we call it? A constitutional coup in Brazil, the ouster of Dilma Rousseff and the uh, social democratic government there in favor of the deeply reactionary right wing government under Temer and his gang of criminals, which run that country now. Of course, we have right wing governments in other parts of uh, uh, South America and in Central America as well, not the least of which being the uh, criminal gang that runs Honduras. Thank you, Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama. Yeah. So uh, you have a, a a global or maybe we should say a regional political situation that is vastly different from what we had 10 years ago when oil prices were high, Chavez was at the peak of his power, and Venezuela was able to flex muscles internationally with things like Petrocaribe, which with Alba and Salac and some of these other international institutions. So the uh, political reality has changed so significantly and so dramatically in the last few years. I think it's in some ways very predictable that Venezuela would find itself in such a crisis. Yeah, and I think that comes down to really the crux of the whole situation is why leftists and progressives should support the Bolivarian Revolution because as you're as you're laying out, there are a lot of problems. It's a very different world than it was just a few years ago. And as we're charting this new territory of, you know, Trump, this reality star billionaire con artist who's constantly threatening these countries and who has Rex Tillerson at the helm. I mean, 
we need to understand what's at stake. Um, and, you know, I forgot to mention this one thing, and I, and I really should. It's what happened to us after we got back from Venezuela, Eric, um, because we were just simply talking about the death toll and how, you know, a lot of, a lot of the death toll was, was uh, being manipulated and that there was actually a lot of opposition people were responsible for. We had an actual virtual lynch mob um, against us. We probably can't go back to the country for a while because there is a, a, a basically just a, a, a death, you know, a call to kill us. A out, fatwa? Um, a fatwa. <laughs> exactly. Um, and, 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 you know, right after that happened to us, the threats were acted upon. I mean, a Telesor journalist and also Global Vision, Global Vision journalists were doused with gasoline, told that they were going to be lit aflame. But this other woman who actually was a Telesor journalist, clearly Mark Prensa, um, was attacked by Molotov cocktails, nails, and also was shot in the back by, by a, a live round. So this happened directly after we left. And, you know, you look at the Committee to Protect Journalists and Human Rights Watch, and there's not a peep about the opposition, the fascistic, violent tendencies of the opposition actually threatening and almost killing journalists. You know, all you hear about is Maduro's crackdown on the press. So I think that when we're looking at what's at stake, um, you know, a lot of these leftist publications, if it's Jacobin or Democracy Now!, when, you know, you, you have all this pressure surrounding you as a leftist or so-called progressive, and it's all about what are you going to do to condemn Maduro, right? What are you going to do to condemn Maduro? But really, we have to look at the situation. There is no third line to take. It's either the opposition or the Bolivarian revolution. Yeah, there's, there's tons of problems. Um, revolutions aren't pretty, but revolutions have the right to defend themselves, um, and I think that when you're looking at both movements, only one movement wishes to rule the other without incorporating that vision into its rule. Um, we've seen this time and again. I mean, all the missions that have been in place uh, over Chavez and Maduro's legacy, those would be immediately overturned and privatized by the opposition. Their plans have already been laid bare. Um, so I think there's a lot at stake. Uh, we could see a Pinochet-style fascist dictatorship be installed if Chavismo really does get crushed. Um, but I think it all comes down to, you know, there's an election next year um, and we need to support the democratic process and, and sovereignty of Venezuelans. And we need to support the fact that 8 million people came out to sh support Chavismo and came out to support that recent constituent assembly. And, um, and leftists who don't understand what's at stake and, and what they need to do to draw a line in the sand and say, we're not going to support the opposition. I mean, I, I it's pretty unfortunate because there is no middle ground. There is no gray area here. I totally agree. Now, I, I would say this too, and um, you know, not not necessarily picking on any individual or any individual publication, because I think there are a number that are guilty of this. But the reality <laughs> is, oh, and if you think I'm pussyfooting around it, fuck you, Jacobin. I don't give a shit. <laughs> but, uh, you know, um, no, I, I, I like some of the stuff they publish, but the Venezuela mm -hmm. shit was garbage. Um, but but the point is that I think that a lot of people who comment about Venezuela would do well to speak to some actual Venezuelan revolutionaries to speak to some actual Venezuelan Chavistas and understand their perspective because it's not like every Chavista you meet is just blindly supportive of everything the government does. Actually, I saw some of the most blistering criticisms of the government from Chavistas, including some of the most militant that I that I met, and actually probably the two or three most militant people that I met were uh, women who were in communes and who were of uh, a mixed 
indigenous and uh, Venezuelan background. Okay, now these people who literally told me that they owed their lives to the revolution because they were been abandoned by their parents and they didn't speak any uh, Spanish and they were picked up by some, you know, agent of the government or something and given a place to stay or whatever this, whatever the case was, you know, these women that I spoke with, I mean, they told some really, really interesting stories and kind of alluded to some very interesting information that I think people should try to keep in mind. Number one, the military and the government bureaucracy are not the only institutions in that country that are going to be defending Chavismo when it comes under attack. There are millions of people in that country who are not part of any government institution directly who are going to defend the Bolivarian Revolution. So anybody who thinks that this is going to be some quick mop-up job of a collapsing government, they, I think, are severely mistaken. The paramilitaries are not only on the side of the right wing. Right. There are paramilitaries <laughs> There are paramilitary Chavista forces that are going to be prepared to defend themselves and to defend what they've built. This is what I'm trying to get across is that the situation is much more complex than a lot of people really understand or, or, or realize. And so when you have leftists in the United States or in the UK or whatever who are pontificating about what should be done in Venezuela and what leftists should or shouldn't say and should or shouldn't think, maybe they should get a fucking clue and actually talk to some Venezuelans and maybe go there. Yeah, exactly. And when you when you talk to these Venezuelans, you realize that there is a massive grassroots democratic movement. And it was kind of the same in Cuba as as much criticisms as people want to levy at Cuba. I mean, you cannot deny the participatory aspect of the government. I mean, mass rallies, mass community organizing um, in terms of CLAP and the Constituent Assembly. We went to dozens of, of rallies and, and meetings and assemblies, and it was just incredible the amount of people, just just normal townsfolk and community members that came out, kids, uh, teenagers, old, elderly. I mean, everyone from the village came out because it was all so important to them. I just can't imagine that same sort of spirit here. And this is, again, as you mentioned, I mean, this is uh, quite a long time after that revolutionary spirit really had captured the whole country. I mean, it, it's waning for sure. Um, people are psychologically impacted by the economic war and you still see this incredible movement um it's just it's just a sight to behold eric absolutely now i want to get your analysis of the constituent assembly because this has been something of a controversial topic including uh on on the left and including among uh defenders of the bolivarian revolution so uh the constituent assembly that uh that that was convened recently to rewrite the venezuelan constitution uh what were you hearing from venezuelans on the street regarding this subject what were their opinions and perspectives on this and uh how do you you, how do you envision any potential changes that are going to come out of this? Because we have uh, arguments, ongoing debates, ongoing uh, on the left about whether or not this was right, the right thing to do for the Maduro government, whether this is overreach, uh, bordering on authoritarianism, etc. There are many varied arguments on this subject. So, Abby Martin, what's your opinion about the Constituent Assembly? And I think even more important, not to denigrate your opinion, but even more yeah. important... What are what are you hearing from Venezuelans about how they see the Constituent Assembly and its role? So um, I was hearing from Venezuelans that they were extremely supportive of it. Um, the dozens of rallies, the mass marches, and every time I would ask someone, why are you here? What are you doing? They would all bring up 
how impassioned they were about the Constituent Assembly and protecting the missions specifically. I mean, we're talking again about dozens of missions that would be completely eliminated. 1.6 million homes for poor people, free higher education. I mean, even free, um, you know, giving artists and and, um, musicians chances to have careers, right? So all of these things would be completely eliminated or so they're afraid of. And that's, you know, it's a very legitimate fear that the opposition will come in and install some sort of um, totalitarian state that will remove all these social gains. So what can I, I just I'm sorry, can I, I just add it's not only it's yeah. it's not only uh some right wing government taking these things away. What what is a very real danger is that the right wing government would come in and privatize everything exactly. that the government has built, the million housing units and all of the public services and all of these things. The right wing has already promised to begin privatizing these things. So it's it's even more insidious than simply taking it over. It's about privatizing. It's literally a about extracting wealth from the poorest sectors of the Venezuelan economy to, quote unquote, pay for the sins of Chavismo. Exactly, exactly. And they know that. They know what's at stake. They know the threat. Um, and so a lot of these people were just saying, we, we, you know, the Mission Vivienda, the housing project. I mean, as they're giving away so many houses to the poor, that would, how many people would be homeless? 1.6 million people would be homeless within a month. If the opposition took over. So the constituent assembly for people who don't really understand what it is, you kind of mentioned it's it's a people's body. There was about 500 elected delegates from around the entire country, um, but none of them were really from political parties. It was everyone from teachers. There was representatives from the disabled um, fishermen, you know, union union leaders and stuff like that. So people went from far and wide. Um, we didn't know what the show up was going to be. We didn't know what the turnout was going to be. This is coming off the heels of a severe economic crisis. And, and as you mentioned, 2015, the opposition taking over the National Assembly. So we were kind of waiting with bated breath, you know, what is the turnout going to be? And I think we were all pretty floored that 8 million people came out. Now, for people who say these elections can't be trusted, well, you know, back in 2004, Jimmy Carter said that it was it was the best elect- electoral system in the world. Of course, a lot can happen in, in that decade plus. But I think it's fair to mention that they are certainly more transparent than U.S. elections because they have paper receipts and they're they have the ability to be audited where they have thumbprints and paper receipts for every vote. So, it, it, you know, like you can go out and call fraud all you want. But even if they did inflate it, let's just say that the numbers were inflated a million, which I don't see the purpose of doing that at all. But that's what this this call is. That still shows you that 7 million people came out to vote. Like, that's incredible. And the same amount that this fake referendum done by the opposition weeks prior did. So the Constituent Assembly, it's a people's body, representatives from all over that could introduce legislation that could also revise the Constitution that was drafted by Chavez, spearheaded by Chavez in 1999. Now, even though the Constitution was really great and a lot of people had mixed feelings about it, a a lot of people at the opposition protest said, why are we changing the Constitution? Why now um, the Constitution was fine? Why are we changing it? Well, a lot of these missions, again, they want to cement them into law. They want to cement protections and maybe even potentially gain more advances in that Constitution that didn't even exist in the country before, um, LGBTQ, et cetera. So <clears throat> basically, um, 8 million people came out to vote, huge number. At, at, at the same day that this, this Constituent Assembly was happening, this election, 200 polling places were attacked. Um, dozens of of police officers were actually shot. Um, 
and this was called fraudulent, right? By imperial powers. You even had Trump saying, um, we're going to, you know, he threatened and, and he actually sanctioned Maduro directly. This is the fourth leader that's ever been directly sanctioned by the U.S. empire. And why? Oh, because they had a democratic process, because they had a fucking election. So this is the way that the U.S. empire punishes sovereign nations when they have democratic processes, you know, Iran, <laughs> Venezuela. So this was the big thing, right? This is the big thing that all the imperial powers and Western media were saying. This is the big dictatorial authoritarian move. Well, really what it is when you look at it, and you can agree with it or not, the timing, et cetera, but what it is is a radical kind of grassroots democratic measure consisting of elected delegates, like I said, that will put together things that they propose to either change legis- change legislation or, or change the constitution. Here's the part that everyone's missing, is that everything that they propose is going to be put to a nationwide vote. So this is all going to be put to a vote to all Venezuelans. Everything that they do with the Constituent Assembly, what have they already done to propose? They've already proposed eliminating military tribunals for protesters. This was a big point of contention by the opposition, by Luisa Ortega, the attorney general, Um, that they were trying protesters in military tribunals, right? And they were saying this is super fucked up. Well, this is one of the things that the Constituent Assembly, this pro-Maduro body, did. Um, And I forget the other measure that they did now, but I think it's important to mention that weeks prior, the opposition held their own referendum to try to kind of um, protest the Constituent Assembly. And it's amazing the way that the media treated both like referendums. One of them was a fake referendum led by the opposition. That was just, you can vote multiple times, telesorted an independent investigation where they showed that they voted like five times throughout the day. They burned all the ballots afterward and it wasn't even a real vote. But the media took that at face value, did not question that amount of votes whatsoever. And just, you know, repeated it ad nauseum. Wow, look how many millions of people want to protest the this, this process. Well, two weeks later, you have the actual election, the constituent assembly. And of course, everyone screams fraud. So Every election this happens, you know, as you know, being there in 2015, the same thing happened where they ha- they actually audited the vote and found out that it was free and fair. So what's going to happen now? I mean, I support it. I support it simply because I support Chavistas to decide their own fate and future. And the fact that eight million people came out to support the Constituent Assembly, I support their vision and their movement. Um, I feel like as a leftist um, sitting on, in, 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 you know, from my fucking soapbox in America, I, I'm not going to sit here and disparage their movement and process and say, oh, you should have done this, you should have done that. I just simply support them um, in, in their their goal. Absolutely. And it's very weird how they all speak with that weird voice you do. Um, <laughs> but but um, one thing that I would say, too, and this, I think, is relevant for, for leftists in the U.S. And, and in the West in general – one of the common criticisms, and I think with, with a lot of justification of the Bolivarian Revolution, going back to the time that Chavez uh, ascended to power in 98-99, was that uh, the revolution didn't go far enough, that it was unable to unseat the bourgeoisie in, in the way that it would have needed to in order to really uh, you know, carry forward socialism, right? This is one of the most common criticisms, you know, call it ultra-leftism or orthodox uh, Marxism interpretation or what have you, but uh, this is one of the common criticisms. And one of the institutions that was a particular uh, concern was the National Assembly, specifically because the right wing was able to control and block 
every initiative that the government wanted to put forward by virtue of their electoral win that I would argue was thanks to an economic and psychological war, as well as backing from the United States and the Sp- and the Spanish and some other forces around the world. And so what we ha- what we're actually witnessing, in my opinion, is a transformation of the institutions of the Bolivarian Revolution in order to more deeply uh, cement the program and the direction rather than having it constantly rely on electoral victories. Because one thing we learned uh, since, especially since 2013, is that the power of personality is not going to be enough to carry the Bolivarian Revolution forward. Hugo Chavez was larger than life. He was uh, a personality, you know, for the ages in a lot of ways. And nobody can reasonably expect another Chavez to come and to take the reins of the revolution. And so instead, there seems, at least from my perspective, there seems to be a need for an institutional transformation. And I think that that's what the Constituent Assembly is really about, saying Venezuela is not going to be thrown into the shitter because of a bunch of right-wingers controlling the National Assembly. Rather, we're going to empower the women and the peasants and the industrial workers and all of these other people who have been marginalized, oppressed, and otherwise shut out of government business on the day-to-day level. They're going to be the ones to make these decisions. Eric, you, you bring up a really good point, and that's what I didn't mention is that, you know, when you when you asked about obstruction before, the National Assembly has basically ceased to function um, since the right wing took it over. They, they've been like the GOP here when under Obama. I mean, it was just a completely a cartoonishly obstructionist force. Um, and, and instead, it was working to um, destroy the economy, right? Like it was doing the opposite. It wasn't even just sitting back and saying, we're just going to obstruct everything that's done. They were actually going out of their way, working with Trump, working with, you know, banks across the world to actually deny loans, et cetera. So yeah, they have been totally an obstructionist force. And this is why, of course, the latest propaganda ploy is talking about how the Constituent Assembly overtook the National Assembly, right? Now they've seized, um, they basically have taken over all of their power. No, the National Assembly, again, is refusing to acknowledge the Constituent Assembly. They're refusing to even work with them whatsoever. So what is this body supposed to do? Just sit there and say, OK, our country's just going to go to shit because you guys refuse to be adults and work together and have seats at the table. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I mean, we're seeing this happen again, again and again and again. And, and, and so the National Assembly is now the Constituent Assembly is now actually having to propose legislation because the National Assembly is just sitting on it. Indeed. All right. So uh, we're just about out of time, but I just want to ask, um, and I'm not really going to ask for prediction necessarily, uh, but shit, I said that, but I guess it is. <laughs> I guess I am asking for a prediction, really. Uh, so how do you envision this playing out? I mean, there are some people talking about a civil war in the offing for Venezuela, some saying maybe that's a bit uh, extreme. Uh, what do you envision for, let's say, the near term and the medium term and the long term in Venezuela? And are there outside circumstances that might uh, come, you know, uh, be, you know, come to bear on what happens in Venezuela? Before I went there, I was worried. Um, I was worried for many reasons, things that I mentioned before, but I was also worried at, 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 you know, the buying into the propaganda that Chavismo was dead and that regime change was near. Being there, Eric, um, seeing the tens of thousands of people, seeing these massive community meetings, seeing, you know, you're surrounded by just murals of, of Che and Chavez. I mean, even way more than even Cuba. I felt like I was c- constantly surrounded by this force, this revolutionary spirit. 
that's not going to die easily. Um, as you mentioned, there, there's not just right-wing paramilitary forces. There's huge pro-government collectivos, um, armed entire neighborhoods um, that, that these people know to not go into, that there are no protests at because they know that they don't want to get in, you know, into a giant street battle. So I think for the short term, hopefully the Constituent Assembly does what it's intended to do, bring peace, um, dialogue, actually move things forward, try to rectify some of these horrible things that the obstructionist National Assembly has been doing for the last couple of years, um, try to change course of the country and, and stop these violent guarimbas. Um, in the medium term, I mean, it all depends on if Trump backs down. He's such a crazy sociopath that um, it depends. We know Rex Tillerson wants the oil. That's for damn sure. It depends on if, if they can rein Trump back. Um, I think that in the long term, it depends on Venezuelans themselves. Leftists can can say and talk shit and critique as much as they want to from America. But it really is going to depend on on the millions of Venezuelans who who want to see this process continue, who see the value in the Bolivarian Revolution, and who will fight to the death. As we both know, Eric, millions of people will, um, and that's the difference of the naivete in, in American society. Venezuelans have gone through cyclical processes of of revolution, and we just simply don't understand what's at stake. But they certainly do, and, and I have faith in in the people there. As do I. Uh, very well said. Abby Martin, uh, host of The Empire Files. Check that out on Telesur. Uh, go to MediaRoots.org, Media Roots Radio. Uh, very important podcast to be following. Uh, also follow Abby on Twitter, at Abby Martin. Uh, Abby, thanks for coming on the show today. Really great talking to you. Hey, super great talking to you too, Eric. Thank you so much for all the work you do. You rock. Thank you, and thank you listeners as always, and I will chat with you again next week. 